there's every part of me that today wants to celebrate, you know, we've done it, and then the other part of me wants to say, okay, this is nothing that we have done. This is absolutely a gift from God that uh, He has brought this building together. He's brought us together to do His work. Um, I am so encouraged, and I just need to say thank you to everybody. Uh, if you have not been able to give of your time, or your talents, you have given of your treasures to support this. So thank you for those of you who have given of your time, your talents, your treasures towards this kingdom endeavor. We are not done yet. Um, and I'm not talking about just the building. This is the beginning of a new season for us. And uh, this morning, we're the message that we are going to be hearing from uh, from the book of Acts is, I've titled it, An Unlikely Conversion. And uh, it's, it's talking about a man named Saul. And uh, a very unlikely man to be converted by the good news of Jesus Christ. And I believe that it, if you look honestly at your own life, many of you were in those places of despair, and God reached down by His grace and said, You're mine. Come with me. And you had no other response but, yes, Lord, take me. I am yours. So the work that we have as a church in a building, but also the ministry that God has, is not done. Because the message needs to continue to be shared. So this morning, we, uh, before we even start, I want to pray that God uses this time to His glory to change our hearts Father, I thank you that in your abundant mercy and grace you have saved sinners like us. Lord, there is, we have done nothing to deserve it. We have done nothing. But because of your grace, you have saved us. And you have given us the gift of life, which is found in Jesus Christ and his once and all for all sacrifice on our behalf. God, I pray, Lord, that you open our ears and our hearts for those of us who are saved, that, Lord, that we not only remember our salvation, but that we continue to remember it and that we are compelled by your gift of grace to move. God, use us this morning. And Lord, for those of us who are here searching, God, would you stir in us to the point that we have to respond to the good news as it is revealed in Christ. Use us, O Lord. Change us, transform us by the power of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I can finally say grab a pew Bible if you don't have one and turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We're going to be reading Acts chapter 9, 1 through 19.
but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was, went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there's a lot of confusion uh, about what it really means to be born again. In in Christian circles, you hear, uh, well, I'm a born-again believer. I'm I'm born again. I'm a Christian, so I'm I'm born again. And there's a lot of really confusion about what does it mean to be a born-again Christian. There's a a researcher, and his name was uh, Wade Roof, and he wrote a book called Spiritual Marketplace, Baby Boomers and the Remaking of American Religion. And he he argues in this book that born-again Christians are united by emotions and experiences, but not by shared doctrines and beliefs. So emotions and what I feel and experiences, we're united about those things, but not necessarily by doctrine or belief. And what he finds in his his research is that one-third of America's 77 million baby boomers is that they identify themselves as 
born-again Christians. But only 5% of them have any link to any kind of conservative Protestant denomination. Only 5% of them. Half says that a religion other than Christianities are equally good and true. Half of those. And one-third believe in reincarnation or astrology of born-again Christians. And nearly one-half fully support abortion in all cases. We all need to be clear about what constitutes a true conversion. And uh, we need to know it for ourselves. And we also, as the work that we have, as we go out, as you are sent out with a blessing at the end, you need to know what constitutes a true life-changing conversion. What does it look like? What does it look like for you? What does it look like for the people who you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with? What does it truly mean to be born again? And we come to our study in Acts to the first of three accounts of the conversion of Saul, later known as the Apostle Paul. And many regard his conversion as the most important events in the history of the church since Pentecost. It was one of those critical events. It is also regarded as second only to the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the most convincing proofs of the truth of the Christian faith. Because if this militant opponent of Jesus Christ was truly converted to become a Christian, to become Christianity's most ardent advocate, it demands an explanation. Why would he do what he did and endure the suffering that he did unless he was convinced that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead through the Holy Spirit, Luke saw something extraordinary in the story of Paul. It was a watershed event. So in the story of Paul's conversion, we see this theme, and this is going to be our theme for the morning, that God and God alone is able to convert the most unlikely sinners and use them as his chosen instruments in the cause of the gospel. God and God alone is able to convert the most unlikely people. And I think that's one of the first things that we have got to get into our heads before we go any further. For you yourself and for the people that we are interacting on a day-to-day basis, that God is able to convert the most unlikely sinners. God is able to do that. And if you don't believe that, We've got to stay here for a while. But if you do believe that, man, the next part is even more extraordinary. That He uses us, uses them as His chosen instruments for the sake of the cause of the gospel. So we're going to look at some spiritual lessons that we see in this story. The first one is this that God is able to convert the most unlikely of sinners. Humanly speaking, Saul was not a likely candidate for salvation. If you look at it, it is 
comparable to Saddam Hussein being converted and then going back and being an, an evangelist to the Arabs. The most unlikely. Saddam Hussein was known, he was a militant Muslim. Militant. But if he would have been converted in his life and gone back to the Arabs, everybody in, in the Muslim areas, those who worship Allah, would go, oh, who, what? this is absolutely insane. This, of all people, him and Saul is very similar. There is no human explanation for Saul's conversion. But there is no human explanation for, honestly, any conversion, if you think about it. Because salvation is not from man. It is from God and God alone. God is able to do what we cannot even imagine. Luke states in, in 9 verse 1 that Saul was, even before he was on the Damascus road, what was he doing? He was breathing, still breathing threats and Murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was angry. He was a pious Jew. And he was sent out with the charge of wrangling up every Christian that he could find, bring them back bound. But not just, you read this, and he was still breathing out these, these threats. Still breathing threats and what? Murder. What was on his heart? He, he was an angry, pious man for the case of God. He now wanted to go 125 miles to Damascus to find any followers of Jesus Christ so that he can bring them back to Jerusalem. The early Christians had not yet broken away from the synagogues, and so the high priests that were still in Jerusalem had jurisdiction even over Damascus. And he was charged, he was being sent out to bring back any Christians. And to show his, his ruthless cruelty, Luke mentions that he was after not just the men, he was after men or women, anyone anyone who was belonging to the way, the, the ones who were following after Jesus Christ, the, the way, the truth, the, the life, anyone who belonged to the way, he was after men or women. It did not matter. He was not after just the heads of the home. He was going after anybody. He didn't care if he took fathers and mothers away from their children. He had an intense hatred for Jesus Christ and his followers that he felt that any suffering he inflicted on them was right and just. Saul was zealous for the law of Moses. And these followers of Jesus were spreading this, this terrible heresy all throughout Israel. And so Saul and his henchmen as they approached Damascus, perhaps they were bragging about all those stupid people that they would, they would round up in an effort to squash this dangerous myth. And just then, just then, there was a brilliant light. A brilliant light that flashed around them and they all fell to the ground. And Saul heard a voice. 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The other men heard the voice, but they could not understand what it was said. And in his confusion and shock, Saul replied back, Who are you, Lord? Who are you? He knew, he knew it was God who was speaking, but he wasn't prepared for what he heard next. I am Jesus. I am Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. James Boyce puts it, God spoke and God was Jesus. And at that same instant, Paul got a glimpse of Jesus in his glory. But the brightness of the light caused him to go temporarily blind. The Lord continued speaking to him, telling Saul to go to, into a city where he would be told what he must do next. Three days later, the Lord spoke to a, a godly man named Ananias who only appears in scriptures in this story. And he obediently went to Saul, prayed for him, and he received his sight back. And he was baptized. The greatest missionary and the theologian of, the, of church history had been truly converted. What can we learn from this? First, I think we can learn that salvation does not depend on the fallen will of man, but rather on the sovereign will and power of God. It depends on God. Anything, everything, anything and everything about Saul's conversion came from God. Saul was not searching for the Lord at all, was he? He was out breathing murderous threats against these people. There was nothing about him searching for the Lord or searching for salvation. He would have told you that he was already one of God's chosen people. In fact, it says that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and as to the law, he was a Pharisee. The Lord did not appear to Saul and plead, Oh, Saul, why don't you just trust in me and I can be your Savior. I have done everything that I can to make that possible. Now, the rest is just up to you. It's your decision. and I, I can't force your will, Saul. Listen, all, you have all the cards. It's your, it's your call. Rather, what did the Lord do? The Lord knocked the man to the ground and completely overpowered him. He, was, he struck him blind. The Lord gave him very direct orders about what he is to do next. And how much choice did Saul have? Saul was God's chosen instrument to fulfill the very definite task to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. God had already ordained how much even Saul was going to suffer ahead of time. And it was not hanging on whether or not Saul would exercise his free will. It was already decided ahead of time. Another thing that we can learn is that salvation doesn't depend on the merits or the good points of a, a man's character or nature, but rather on God's free grace. 
God did not choose Saul because he saw something of value in his nature. God did not choose you because he said, man, I, I think I could clean this one up. Or man, he's, he's really given a lot of cash, a lot of money. He's really serving really well. He's a good, good community servant, you know, really good person, really at his soul. If you look at him, he's a really nice guy. Or she, man, she is just faithful and caring for this and doing this, working, working hard at home or working hard at work. Good people. It has absolutely nothing to do about how good we think that we are. Nothing to do with that. Saul had done nothing to make him worthy of God's grace. Nothing. God didn't even look through time and say, I can see that someday Saul will choose me. That would make God's election depend on something good in man. Namely, his wise choice or his faith or his potential. If God grants salvation to anything in man, then it is not by his free grace, it is by human merit. The Bible is clear that if salvation depends on anything in us, then no one would be saved. Because no one seeks for God. No one. Romans, Romans 8.8 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's nothing that you can do to please God. And since faith and repentance are, ple- repentance are pleasing to God, the natural man cannot believe in Christ or repent of his sins until it's granted to him. But there is good news. Because it means that God can take a man who is breathing threats and murderous thoughts, a committed enemy of the faith, and change his heart from intense hatred to submission by his mighty power. And that is good news. That is good news. We also see, number two, that when God converts a sinner, there are inevitable marks of conversion. There are marks of conversion. There are many more marks of conversion uh, that I can even begin to list here. 1 John gives a number of tests to determine whether a person truly is in Christ and knows Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There's many other scriptures that do the same. But our text, I think that I see at least eight things. First, a conviction of sin is a mark of true conversion conviction of sin before a a man or a woman becomes a saint he or she must first see themselves as a sinner so Saul hears the Lord say Saul Saul why are you persecuting me the repetition of this name just shows a tender concern for him in the same way that Jesus said Martha Martha Or Jesus said, Simon, Simon. Or Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. There's just this burden. By this pointed question, the Lord was not trying to gain more information. But instead, he went to Saul, wanted Saul to consider what he was doing. He thought that he was zealous for the Lord, but in reality, he was persecuting Jesus himself. 
with every Christian he harmed, he was plunging the sword again and again into the wounded side of Jesus. In response to this traumatic revelation, Saul did not eat or drink for three days. I don't think they decided at that point, after he became blind, to say, man, I think I'm going to take a fast and really consider what my response is going to be. Rather, I think that, and if you've seen this in, in the lives of friends and family, when a person is mourning over the death of a loved one, what happens? Food does not taste good. There's no hunger. There's no thirst. He doesn't even desire food. So Paul was in mourning over his sins with a lost appetite. While some may be deeply convicted of their sin at their moment of conversion to show them their great need, others may experience it more in depth as the years follow. That's been my personal experience. Growing up in a Christian family, hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, over the years as, as I constantly are walking closer and closer to Christ, the more that my eyes are opened up to my sin. That's been my experience. My heart just breaks as I, I, as I get closer to the light of Christ and I go, oh Lord, still this in my life? And I have to repent and go another way. Some it's at the moment of conversion where your eyes are open to the good news of Jesus Christ and you just break down because your heart is so heavy of the sin. You are convicted deeply of the sin. The closer we walk in the light, the more the light reveals the dirtiness of our sinful heart. Lamenting the the conversions of Spurgeon's day, which were happening rapidly, and he was a little leery about the, the truthfulness of them. He said this, Today we have so many built up who were never pulled down. So many were filled who were never emptied. So many exalted who were never humbled. That I the more earnestly remind you that the Holy Ghost must convince of sin or we cannot be saved. The true mark of conversion is that we've got to be convinced of our sin. Are you? Are you aware of your sin and how it is an offense to a holy God? How, how even a simple word of gossip is an offense to a holy God? Our lack of generous giving is an offense to a holy God. Fighting and backbiting. Licentious nature. Offense to a holy God. Our lethargy. An offense to a holy God. Are you deeply convinced that you are a sinner in need of grace? That's the first mark. The second mark is that we humbling from our pride is a mark of true conversion. Humbling from our pride. 
Pride is the root of all sins. And we must fight it every day. Pride. But no one gets, gets saved who boasts in his or her own righteousness. No one gets saved who thinks that his or her good deeds will commend him or her to God. No one is saved who thinks that it is his or her own brilliant choice that attained salvation. Saul went off storming to Damascus with the authority to arrest Christians. He had power on his side, but after the Lord struck him down, he had to be led by the hand into the city. At first he was independent and strong. Afterwards he was what? Dependent and weak. No one is truly trusting in the Lord for salvation. He's boasting in himself. The Lord no doubt used Ananias, a simple believer, to teach Saul humility. And you can quickly read over this about Ananias and notice that this man is never mentioned again. The beauty of this is the irony is that Paul, Saul was educated under the reputed Gamaliel, a well-known theologian of his day. But now God forces Saul to receive his sight and his instructions for what he should do next from this simple event, otherwise unknown in Scripture, by a simple man. Humility is not optional. All who are truly saved will freely acknowledge their own sinfulness and will give all the glory for their salvation to God alone. They won't give the glory to a pastor. They won't give the glory to a ministry. Because what are they? They are simply instruments that God uses. They won't give any glory to, man, that missionary over there. Did you see what they did? No. It has nothing to do with that person. It is the gospel that saved them, which is God working powerfully in the lives and using humble instruments. Second, third mark of a true conversion is that there is recognition of and obedience to the Lordship of Christ. Recognition of and obedience to the Lordship of Christ. And this is one of the harder things to wrap our heads around and truly live into. Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he got an immediate answer. I'm Jesus, who you are persecuting. And Saul instantly realized that Jesus Christ was alive from the dead and all, as all of his followers had been asserting. Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. I've been persecuting his people. And he is alive. He also recognized to his horror at first that Jesus was not only alive, but he was also exalted to the right hand of God the Father. Exalted. It followed that Jesus' death on the cross, rather than discrediting him as a false prophet, fulfilled the prophecy. It was God's provision for all of man's sins. His resurrection confirmed 
Him as being Israel's Messiah and the Lord of all the earth. And when this risen and exalted Christ tells Saul to get up and go to the city, and I'll tell you what, what, what you must do next, Saul doesn't say, well, I'll, let me first consider whether or not to accept your offer. Well, let me think through these things. He got up and he went into the city. He got up and went into the city. And after Ananias prayed for him and he regained his sight, the first thing he wanted to do was not eat. After three days of not eating, what would I, what would I do? Man, even if it's old country buffet, I am there. No matter what, I, I, the first thing that I want to do is I want to eat and fill my belly. The first thing that he wanted to do was what? Scripture says, be baptized. And then what did he do? He had a meal. Everyone who truly is converted recognizes the authority of Jesus Christ and seeks to live in obedience to him, no matter what the cost. Fourth thing is, when we look at true marks, is a, there is a transformation from spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. Spiritual blindness to spiritual sight. Paul began the trip physically seeing, but spiritually blind. He ended it physically blind, but spiritually seeing. What he formerly thought he saw, he no longer saw. What he formerly did not see, he now saw in full glory. What was formerly gained to him, the persecution of, of these Christians was now a total loss. What he formerly despised, he now cherished. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale of this, of this great fish, so Paul was three days and nights in the dark. And when the scales fell off his eyes, he saw everything in a brand new light. And the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ. Every truly converted person, if you are truly converted, it is with great ease that you can say this, I once thought that I saw, but I was blind. But now by God's grace, I once was blind, now I see. Fifth mark is seeking the Lord in prayer. The Lord tells Ananias regarding Saul that, behold, he's praying. Behold is left out of some of the, as I'm doing my research, be, that word behold is often left out of some of the contemporary uh, versions of this story. But a, a modern version, English version, would be like, whoa, check it out. He's praying. It carries such great force. Like, behold, oh my goodness, he's praying. Well, why would this be of such shock? Because before, as a, as a Pharisee, Paul, Saul prayed every day. 
prayed every day, but now, whoa, he's praying. It's different. For the first time, Saul is really praying. It's not just these ritualistic prayers that he just keeps on monotonously going through. Okay, it's now midday prayer. Now it's the evening prayer. I say this prayer. Now I say this prayer. Now I say this prayer. No, no. The Lord says to Ananias, Behold, he's, he is praying. His heart is rendered. Oh, it is broken. And he is now fully praying to me. He is enjoying me. He's asking for forgiveness. His, and his sins are before him. And he just is asking for mercy again. He is praying. He is praying. He's praying. He's not just reciting prayers. He's praying from the heart. Really seeking God. Truly converted people. Truly converted people begin to pray in the true sense of the word. That's why when I, I call the church together, the elders call the church together for prayer, a mark of conversion is what? Prayer. I'm just going to leave that to the prayer warriors. Uh, things are going to get kind of weird in there. <laughs> yeah. As we pray, we know that there is a God in heaven who listens to our prayers and desires to give us what? Not stones for bread. He desires to give us what is good. He desires to be in communion with us. And those who are truly converted desire deeply to be in communion with Him and to be in prayer with Him. So when I, when I, this is not my guilt trip, but I challenge you. A true mark of conversion is prayer. Individually and what? Corporately. Together as a family. There's another beautiful thing. Another mark of true conversion is that there is fellowship with the Lord's people. Saul was on a mission to destroy the Lord's people. But now he was dependent on one of the Lord's people to regain his sight. Dependent. Ananias was a godly Jew who had accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior and after he receives the confirmation that he needs from the Lord, he goes to Saul and greets him. And did you pick up the first words that he said to Saul? What did he say? Look, what? Brother. Brother Saul. If not, he didn't walk into the room going, hey, how are you? You, guy, over there. Murderous threat guy. You, I'm going to stay over here. The Lord sent me. First thing that he did, he walked in, laid his hands on him, and said, Brother Saul. What does that say about that community? About when one is truly in the body of Christ, when one is truly saved, immediately they become brothers and sisters. Fellowship is absolutely critical. If you saw out there on the sign, the brand new sign, what are our three things? The three C's? Christ, community. Community is critical. Community 
is what ties us together. If we are the body of Christ, we need each other. If you are not a part of the body, and I'm not talking about just showing up on Sunday, if you are not connected deeply into the, the very life of the church, the, this family, you're missing it. If you cannot call Abby Borhauer sister and truly mean it, something is missing. I'm scared today that we have to go to two services. Why? Because something's going to happen about brothers and sisters. We may have to do it which means we are going to have to work even harder at building fellowship, family. If you are not a part of the family, but you're only serving in ministries to kind of fill a slot, you're missing it. Anybody can serve a slot. Not anybody can be family. Family is critical. And it's a mark of true conversion. There's a desire to be a part. Being part of God's word and studying it together and say, what is God calling us to be about? Let's go out and be a part of God's mission together as a small group of people. How can I support you as a brother or sister in Christ? Where is your greatest needs? Where are your greatest pains? Where are your greatest joys? I want to be with you as a brother or sister in Christ. So a mark of true conversion is fellowship with one another. And I love it, brother Saul. And I want you to think from Saul's part how sweet those words were. He was the very guy who was going out after the church. Had this radical, life-altering experience. And probably in his head, he's going, will they ever accept me? Will they ever take me in? And the first words that he hears is what? Brother Saul. Formerly public enemy number one of the church. But after God transformed him, he immediately became Brother Saul. Beautiful fruit of the gospel. Another mark, a life lived under the power is another mark is a life lived under the power and control of the Holy Spirit. Ananias tells Saul that the Lord has sent him, not only that Saul would regain his sight, but also that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Every Christian receives the indwelling of the Holy Spirit at the moment of his or her conversion, and he gives us the power to overcome. Sin. And his life in us produces the character qualities that are called the fruit of the Spirit. Holy Spirit dwells within those who are in Christ and gives us the power to overcome sin. And there are no small sins. There is a great spirit who dwells within us. If you are seeking to live the Christian life on your own strength, I guarantee that you will be defeated, you will be frustrated, and you'll be ready to just hang it up. 
but if you live daily in submission and dependence on the Holy Spirit, you will experience consistent victory over sin and the joy of salvation that will be welling up in you. Victory and joy. Victory over sin and joy in your salvation. Huge marks of a Christian family. Victory and joy. And the last mark that I see of a true conversion is a new purpose and direction in life in line with God's sovereign will. A truly converted person is no longer his own. He has been bought with a price and now he lives for God's purposes. If you are truly saved, if you have truly been converted, you've been born again, have had a spiritual birth in Christ, you live differently. Saul was God's chosen instrument or vessel to bear his name before the Gentiles and kings of Israel. Every converted person needs to ask the question, Lord, what would you have me do with my life? That means your workplace. You say, Lord, here in this place with these people, what is it that you want me to do with my life here? How do I demonstrate and proclaim the gospel to these people? In your families. Lord, what do you want me to do with these people? What is my purpose in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ and demonstrating this good news to them? In this church family, God, what is, what is your will for me here? Is it to be a, a lone island that shows up? Or is it to be, be vulnerable for your purposes in this community of people? Lord, as I, as I walk the streets, as I do my grocery shopping, Lord, what is it that you have me to do? What is your purposes? Lord, as I study as a high school student or an elementary student or as a college student or as, God, as you have me as a grad student, what is it that you want me to do with my life for your purposes? Not for just my family and my, my gaining of financial wealth and security. God, what is it that you want me to do? Maybe, Lord, I will lose it all financially, but gain it all following your purposes. Read the stories of the martyrs of the Christian faith. They, they lost it all by the world standards, didn't they, in following his purposes. But ultimately, what did they do? They gained it all. One who is truly converted says, Lord, what will you have me do? And it's not a one-time question. Which leads us to the last and final and short major lesson. God uses, God uses converted Christians as his chosen instruments 
in the cause of the gospel. God uses them. Saul had a mission, and it was self-willed, and it was evil. He thought he was serving God by eliminating these heretics, but he was only feeding his pride and his lust for power. He was advancing beyond many of his contemporaries. He was climbing the religious ladder to prominence. But now, he became an earthen vessel filled with God's treasure, with a new sense of purpose of glorifying God, whether by life or by death. Formerly, he inflicted suffering on others. Now he will suffer much for the sake of Christ. Formerly, he despised the Gentiles. Now he was willing to offer them the riches of Christ. If you are truly saved from your sins, he has a purpose for your life. And it is not primarily for you to succeed in the American dream. His main purpose has to do with the eternal reality. I hope that it is breaking your heart that there are people around you in your apartment complexes, in your neighborhoods, in your families who are far from Christ. And that if they would die today, they would spend eternity not just away from you, but eternity away from God and His promises of peace and life in eternity. I pray that you recognize that and it breaks your heart deeply. And that you say, you cry out and say, Lord, use me for your purposes. I desire to be a vessel of your grace to my family, my friends, my co workers. Lord, if it is your will that you use me in the great cause of discipling the nations, that he may even let you fulfill his purposes even here in the States, in, in unreached parts of the world. There are people who are suffering the eternal torments of hell. We are called to be lights. A light to the nations. A light to the world. As Boko Haram is waging war, persecuting Christians, we are sending out missionaries who joyfully say, Lord, send me and my kids to the middle of Nigeria with the good news of Jesus. In conclusion, 1 Timothy 1.16 says, And yet for this reason I found mercy 
in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul's conversion is an example for all of us. It is an example of the fact that none are too far gone for God's mighty power to save. It is an example of what God can do when He takes hold of a life of a man who has been resistant to the Gospel all his life. It's an example to encourage us to pray for and encourage with every sinner. Every sinner. No matter how nice and clean they are, they look externally. But we share the gospel with every person. It is an example for us to commit afresh. Commit afresh to whatever purpose God has given us to do in His kingdom. Starting here and going out. That we commit afresh. In our gospel proclamation, in our gospel demonstration, in our giving of our tithes and our offerings, in our using of our gifts and our talents, that we commit afresh to God's kingdom purposes. Paul later wrote, For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him. But for Him who died and rose again on our behalf. We live for Him who died and rose again. That's our purpose. Father God, um, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning who maybe again are realizing the sin, the reoccurring habitual sins in their lives. Lord, I pray that you're, you're the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit will help them have victory over sin and that they may find the joy again in their salvation. God, I pray also that in for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that they may find true fellowship in the body that you have given us, the body of Christ. God, I pray too, Lord, that you will Use us as converted sinners or chosen instruments who are faithfully going out and saying, Lord, use me. God, use me. Whatever it is that you have, have to do in this world, in my place, in my family, in my workplace, God, use me. And that we, like Ananias, will say, I will go. God, I pray for our gospel witness. 
Lord, that we may obediently and boldly and compassionately share the gospel. But Lord, I also pray for those among us this morning who are hearing the good news of Jesus Christ crucified. The one who knows us by name, who has been intimately involved in our creation. Who calls out our names. Just says, Jesus, you said, Saul, Saul. Lord, you are calling us by name. Lord, I pray that your spirit, even now in this moment, is calling out by name. And in response, Lord, we submit our lives to you fully in this moment, recognizing that we are fully sinners in need of a Savior, that we are apart from you as a holy, loving God, needing your grace and your mercy. That we rely on your gift of grace of giving your Son, Jesus Christ, in our place, the perfect Lamb of God, the one who has came to take away the sins of the world, he became our substitute. Lord, may we respond to your free gift of grace. Lord, here am I. Broken and dependent on you. Lord, build us up this morning. Build us up for your purposes. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.